Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, got required listening for veterinarians or people hiring veterinarians today. You're not going to want to miss this one. It is fan freaking tastic with my friend, Dr. Lance Rosa, who is a veterinarian and an attorney. He is the founder of Drip Vet Learning, which is a great place to get CE. I uh, I have gotten my opioid uh, safety CE there recently. And it was real good. He does a good job. So, guys, uh, you're going to you're going to really enjoy this. It was a, a really good episode. It's a good interview. I um, I personally got a lot out of it. Before you get into it, let me just put something on your radar. Starting May 19th, the one and only Stephanie Goss, who's a dear friend of mine, my co-host over at the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast, she is starting a workshop called Effective Onboarding. If you are bringing on new people and you want them to stay, then uh, then we can help. Stephanie Goss is going to take it up. This is a three-part workshop. On May 19th is the paperwork. On May 23rd, third is an office hours session uh, where she's going to handle your questions and on may 26 is the people this is the human side of onboarding so nobody's better at this stuff than stephanie goss these are two hour sessions except for the office hours which is just one hour um, you can get more information in the link down below this is open to the public it is 199 dollars for all three parts it is free to uncharted members if you are an uncharted veterinary uh, community member then you're in there like swimwear if you're not then you should think about that i love the uncharted community guys that's enough about this let's get into this episode this is your show we're glad you're here we want to help you in your veterinary career welcome to the cone of shame with dr andy rourke Welcome, Dr. Lance Rosa. Thanks for being on the podcast with me. Great to see you, Dr. Rourke. Great to be here. It's, it's good to see you. So you graduated the same year I did. You were a Texas A&M grad, and I met you through the VBMA. You were one of the national advisors for the Veterinary Business Management Association, one of the vet student uh, organizations. And I think that that's where you and I met. Is that? Do you have a, a recollection of that? That is correct. Uh, yeah, we graduated both 2008, um, but I didn't get to meet you for a few years later. Yeah, no, you do more things than I do, uh, which is which is uh, it's refreshing for me. Uh, it's good. It's good. It makes you make me feel uh, like I uh, like I'm relaxing, which is good. You uh, you are a veterinarian. You are a lawyer. You have been a multi practice owner. You still have a legal practice. Uh, correct. That is correct. You, you also run a drip vet, which is a. Is, is it exclusively online? I know you lecture in person, but is, is DripVet mostly online education? We Yes, DripVet does specialize in online education. However, we do deliver content to veterinary schools, about 16 veterinary schools across the country on topics such as legal, business, ethics, uh, personal finance, things along those lines. So we have a combination of both live and online events. Now, I did my required DEA CE with you and drip.vet and it's excellent. It was it was great stuff, great work, really accessible, really easy to use. Uh, it's 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 awesome. So so first of all, thank you for uh thank you for putting that out and making that possible and for doing the DEA CE that we're uh that more and more states are requiring. And um yeah, I hope people get will give you a look. I wanted to bring you on today and there's a million things that we could 
talk about. I always enjoy our time together. I wanted to talk a little bit about the legal side of medicine. I wanted to talk a bit about uh, about employment and employment contracts and the job market with you. Is that is that okay places for us to start? That's great. That's actually about 50% of my legal practice is getting veterinarians into contracts, usually associate veterinarians, getting veterinarians out of employment contracts. Um, and really concentrating on the things, the, the, the individual provisions that affect those veterinarians in everyday life. I have this feeling that employment contracts have changed pretty significantly over the last 10 years. And I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. But just the conversations I'm having with veterinarians and the questions that they're asking, uh, that it feels very different from when I started practice, you know, 12, 13 years ago. Do you agree with that or do you feel like this is more of the same? Absolutely. You know, monumental changes in the in the employment contract and the employment agree- agreement setting in veterinary medicine. I've been doing this for about five years now, um, but you and I both know Dr. Jim Wilson well. Uh, Dr. Wilson's mm-hmm. been doing this for about 30 years. Um, and my paralegal is actually used to work for Dr. Wilson. Um, Steve, Steve's been doing this for about 20 years. Um, and so yeah. we have a combined database of literally thousands of employment contracts. Um, and I can go back and look and see what's changed over the last 20, 30 years, and particularly just in the last five years, huge changes um, in, in employment contracts. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that your follow up question is going to be, well, why? Why is that happening? Um, and we see a lot of we see a lot of reasons for that. One is, is there's a white hot job market right now and veter- and practices really want to lock veterinarians into yeah. their employment contracts. It's hard to hire, period. Um, and then once you lose a veterinarian, it's hard to replace them. Uh, secondly, we see this influx of, you know, basically group practices, corporate practices, if you will. And along with that comes, hate to say it, but very sophisticated lawyers, um, very highly trained and, and, and highly sophisticated business lawyers. And when they draft an employment contract, it's not the old mom and pop handshake agreement yeah. you know, of the 1980s. Um, it's a much different employment contract. Let's start at the mile high level. Can you give me a picture of what today's uh, employment contract for a veterinarian kind of looks like? And so, and so if I was new to this and I was just kind of walking up to my first job, what should I expect to see in a contract that maybe I wouldn't have seen 10, 20 years ago? Yeah, well, number one, um, this is probably going to be a written employment contract, a written employment agreement. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of these were literally handshakes. They were oral yeah. agreements, oral contracts. And so, hey, you come to work for me, we shake hands and, uh, you know, I'll pay you X and away we go. You know, everybody knows you're going to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Um, and that's it. That's the end of the agreement. Um, now, uh, fast forward, you know, to 2021. Um, that agreement is a written contract in, in a good 70, 80, 90% of the cases. Secondly, there's an employment handbook that goes along with that as well that kind of oversees all of the protocols, procedures, and employment practices you know, at that practice, at that group practice. Um, but kind of the overarching reason, why is it? Why do, why do practices now have these more complicated, complex, and sophisticated employment contracts? The simple fact of the matter is, is the restrictive covenant. And so without a written employment agreement, a veterinarian can't have a restrictive covenant. So restrictive covenant in layman's term, this is just a non-compete, right? It, it just says you cannot work anywhere except with us who you're signing the contract with in a certain area, uh, usually, and there's a time limit. Usually it's like if you quit here, then uh, for two years, you cannot work anywhere in this halo that we lay down. Is that an accurate, accurate definition? That's close. But um, Dr. Rourke, let me put, let me 
show you how I, I kind of think about these. Yeah, and so please. we're going to use our veterinary degrees, our science or biologic degrees for biological degrees for a second. So I think of the restrictive covenant kind of like the genus. And under that genus, there's a multitude of species. Non-compete agreements, as you mentioned, are absolutely one of the species of this genus of restrictive covenants. But also okay. in that genus is non-solicitation agreements, confidentiality agreements, employee invention agreements, things along those lines that also restrict the veterinarian's ability to do things after they're employed with the practice. And so let's go back to the, the original word, restrictive covenants. What does covenant mean? Covenant means a promise. And so basically the veterinarian is promising to restrict something to the practice. And so they're promising to restrict their employment, their confidentiality, their solicitation to the practice after they've worked at the practice. And that's what is so problematic and quite frankly, offensive about this to some veterinarians. So let's put those things apart. Um, the confidentiality thing, we can we can sort of come back to that and touch on it. The, the difference in, in where I practice versus the solicitation, uh, are we talking about I'm not a, I'm not allowed to um, to let clients know where I'm going if I leave? Are we talking about soliciting employees away from the practice, which is a big deal of, hey, guys, I'm going uh, I'm I'm moving you know, 10 minutes down the road and I could really use great technicians with me. Like, obviously, you know, let's empathize here. Of course, the business owner doesn't want a vet to leave and take the staff with them. And like, it's be massive disruption and and really could be catastrophic for them. Uh, nobody wants that. Everybody, I, as I'm going to say, is is generally trying to ask, act in best interest. Um, so it makes sense. But is, is that, are there other aspects to that? Are those things kind of bundled together? Like uh, how, how rare is it to see one of those things and not the others? Yeah. So in the good practices or, or let's say in the good contracts, the contracts that are written by a good, sophisticated lawyer, um, they have all those components. The most important to most veterinarians are one, the non-compete agreement that you mentioned, which it usually restricts a certain type of practice for a certain radius and a certain time frame. The second thing that's insanely important is this non-solicitation. And there's usually two components to that non-solicitation. One, you can't solicit clients. And let's come back to that in just a second. And two, okay. you can't solicit employees. Now, that's usually called an anti-rating provision. So just thinking, you know, kind of common okay. terms, anti-rating, you can't take the team that you worked with. But let's back up over to the non-solicitation of clients provision. Now, this is another change from 1985 to you know, 2015, 2020, 2021 is back in the day, back in 1985 or back in 2008, when you and I graduated, solicitation occurred you know, through basically phone calls, basically postcards, running into someone in the, gro in the grocery store, the convenience stores or, or in town, something like that. Now, in the age of social media, which we all you know, live in and love, um, solicitation can actually occur just by changing your update, cha updating your status over on LinkedIn or updating your your uh, your page over on Facebook. And so solicitation can take a variety of definitions. And these cases are starting to kind of boil up where a veterinarian just, quote unquote, solicits clients via their LinkedIn or uh, via their their Facebook platform if they are friends with those clients on Facebook. So are you saying that like if I say I had that I had a non-solicitation agreement in, in my contract at the veterinary clinic and then I leave 
and I continue to post pictures and, you know, from from my work, you know what I mean? And just just something as innocuous as, hey, guys, I'm, you know, I'm at this practice or it's my first day here or things like that. Are you saying that that those things could possibly be seen as solicitation of clients or is it or does it have to be more direct? Like, hey, come on down. I'm over here seeing new appointments. It goes down to the definition of solicitation that's in the contract. And so a, a good lawyer that's working for the employer will write a very broad definition of solicitation, which just basically means if you see those clients, if you if you serve those clients, if you offer to serve those clients, that means if you're standing in the exam room and you're bound by one of these non-solicitation clients, client comes in, you're technically breaching the non-solicitation. That's opposed to the older traditional definition of solicitation, which is a targeted marketing. So you can see how if you have a group of friends on your Facebook, you know, in Facebook and you change your your posting or you say, I'm now working at XYZ Veterinary Hospital instead of ABC Veterinary Hospital, that is targeting a select number of people, some of which are your clients, which can rise to the level of non-solicitation. So to answer your question directly, You've got to be very careful about these non-solicitation provisions and make sure that you don't breach them. But more importantly than that, I'd rather you be aware of them before you actually sign them. Um, that's yeah. the big deal here. Yeah. Oh, it's much easier to avoid these complications by just not getting into them. I think um, it's a whole lot easier to talk about these things before we sign the contract. First of all, as a doctor, I think you have a lot more leverage uh, before you sign this thing. Uh, the And the other part is just in the abstract when nobody is upset and everyone is excited about getting started. I think people are often a lot more open minded, you know what I mean, to seeing both sides of the issue as opposed to when it's actively happening and people's, you know, people are triggered and there's there's resentment or whatever or fear or stress. And, and that's come into play. I have to tell you, I've helped, you know, hundreds of veterinarians through what I call the breakup process. And so kind of yeah. think about it like a romantic relationship in the in the honeymoon phase. Everything's great. Everything goes. Everything's cool. You know, let's all get along. And that's when you're contracting in the, you know, in the veterinary world. So your absolute highest leverage as an associate veterinarian or an employer, for that matter, is during that honeymoon honeymoon phase when you're actually getting into and signing the contract. So if you need any changes, let's get them done then. When the breakup is occurring, think about it like a breakup on the romantic side. Parties aren't talking, everybody's nasty, everybody's mean. You are not going to be able to negotiate your way out of one of these during the breakup phase. So let's put a pin in that for a second. I, I don't wanna to jump too fast to the breakup phase, but we're definitely gonna come back to that. Uh, let's let's talk about the restrictive covenants in general. So let's talk about the, like the do not compete and things like that. Are there, are there rules of thumb anymore? There, I feel like there used to be like when, when, again, when I was coming to practice, it was like, you know, about three miles for your regular general practitioner and then specialists or emergency vets, maybe a bigger radius because they draw from a bigger radius. Are there, are, are there rules like of thumb like that anymore? Or is that all just gone and it's kind of uh, very, um, very individual specific? Uh, yeah, I, I guess. Should there be some numbers I have in my head of what is what is the norm or what is what is considered reasonable? Unfortunately, there's not. And the reason for that is, is these are very, very state dependent. Um, these are even county dependent at times. Um, so very specific laws govern these non-compete agreements. And now we're talking about the time frame and the radius and the scope of practice that a veterinarian is promising not to practice within after leaving the practice. And so very, very state specific. As far as some reasonable guidelines and things like that, it totally depends on the type of practice, 
large animal, mixed animal, ambulatory looks a lot different than you know, urban and suburban type settings. Kind of the best set of guidelines that I can come up with is the radius should encompass about 80% of the clientele. Meaning that if a client's driving from 30 miles away, we don't not necessarily automatically have a 30 mile radius for that one or two or 10 clients. We, we try to encompass about 80% of the clientele in their driving. Having said that, I have literally seen these enforced that are as wide as 250 miles. And I've seen them as small as city blocks. And so it is in, incredibly variable on the, on the radius. It totally depends on the situation. So when I have looked at this, you know, and from the other side, and, and, and I'll talk to people who are, who are looking at an employment contract and we're just generally sort of talking, it's always felt fairly reasonable to me to say to an employer, hey, look, I want this to work and I want this to be great. If it doesn't work, that's, sometimes that's just life. Um, I don't want to have to move to, to be able to work. And I feel like most employers at the beginning when you do this, most people kind of get that. You know, no one would want to be like, hey, this didn't work out. And now I have to pick my family up and leave. Is there any uh, is there any weight to that as far as making a case for what is a reasonable radius? Or is that, you know, is that just pie in the sky? How I how I sort of try to justify it to people. So, yeah. Is there any weight to anything like that of me having to pick up and, and move and not being able to support my family? If I have this radius, that is absolutely what is most offensive about these non-compete agreements. And so one that's that's drafted, that's written too wide, too long. The veterinarian that's leaving the practice really has limited options. They can either lay out a practice for several years, which is not palatable or pick up their family and move, both of which are horrible options. And so during the negotiation phase, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to get the non-compete agreement taken out completely. But you can certainly and this is what I advocate for, appeal to the other side, the employer's sense of fairness. And so the first thing we do is establish, hey, can we just do this in a fair manner? You don't want to punish me. You shouldn't need to punish me. I completely get that you should protect your practice and that's why they won't take it out completely. But let's get to what's fair. It's not fair to make me move, but it's certainly fair to not have me see your clients in the future or not solicit clients or not actively compete with you. So the bottom line is, is there is a way to get this to what is fair and equitable and just for both parties. One side needs to protect their practice. The other side needs to protect their family. Let's narrow this down to what is reasonable. And that really brings me to like the three things that you can negotiate for in a non-compete agreement when you're negotiating one of these. One, you you should certainly negotiate the radius. And so that radius is certainly flexible. And even to the point that we have different radii. So a radius for small animals versus a different radius for large animals, or maybe on one side of the interstate, it's wider and one side of the interstate, it's, it's lesser. And so get really get down with basically a carving knife and carve that radius up to, to specify for that specific practice. The second thing that you can negotiate for is the time frame. And so if it's a three-year time frame, that's a long time. Maybe let's knock it down to a two-year. If it's a two-year, let's knock it down to a one-year. Maybe there's a different there's a different time frame after you've been at the practice for a certain amount of time. And then the third thing that you should negotiate for is the scope of practice. If it's a small animal day practice, then that thing needs to be limited to small animal day practice, not emergency, not small ruminants, not large animals, et cetera. If it's an equine practice, it should be limited to equines. So at least if you do have to leave, maybe you can go pick up some relief shifts. Maybe you can go pick up an emergency shift and still support yourself and support your family and not have to move. 
Can you define, so you're saying uh, timeframes and timeframes are important. We should negotiate timeframes just for people listening at home. Could you define, uh, define what you mean when you say timeframe? Yeah. So what you're promising is what you're covenanting is you're not going to work in this radius for a certain amount of time. And most commonly I'll see two year, three year, even in some rare cases, five year non-compete agreements. Now keep in mind, this is after you leave the practice. So it's basically like saying somebody that I used to have a relationship with is now prohibiting me from doing something in the future. And so you're no longer getting paid. You're no longer working for that practice, but you can't practice within that radius, which is obnoxious. It's offensive. Um, it, yeah. it, we have to do it to protect the practice, but um, it's courts, lawyers. We don't like that. How is there any sort of a, a sort of a standard time that you're seeing or is that as variable as the as the radius is? Most of these are, a lot of these are actually um, determined by state law. So for example, Florida, um, uh, two years is presumed reasonable. It can go longer than that, but basically the employer has to prove why two years is not reasonable. Um, other states, the common law, the courts over the years have decided, hey, this is reasonable. So you know, anything more than two years and less than three years is kind of pseudo deemed reasonable. And so most lawyers that work in those states know to write these to what a court has already decided being reasonable. I feel like in the past, there has been some sway in in the restrictive covenants and their enforceability. And it seemed to me at one point in the past, like the trend was that these were looking less and less enforceable. Uh, what is that like today? Is that, is, is that true? Is, is the opposite true? What, what's going on as far as when I sign this agreement and I say, I'm not going to, uh, this is what's going to happen. I'm not going to practice in this radius for two years after the end of my, uh, of my contract here with you. Are there places where that is not being enforced or is not, uh, is not, uh, is not going to hold up in court if I come back and challenge it later on? Or is it pretty much, no, that's the contract you signed it. You, you're going to be in. In, uh, so that progress on this front is very slow. And so by my research, about 44 states will absolutely enforce restrictive covenants, non-competes on veterinarians. About six states won't. Very rarely a new state law is passed on this. For example, Washington state just passed a law um, beginning 2020. But the states that won't enforce traditional non-competes in veterinary medicine, California, Alabama, Montana, Oklahoma, um, these are, you know, California being the biggest and the in the in the most uh, and the least likely to enforce a non-compete. But having said that, these are non-competes are well established, well codified, like I say, in 44 states. When I did the legal research on this in 2016, I wrote an entire paper on this Did all the you know, pulled all the cases from veterinary medicine. So I did I wrote a legal paper specifically on enforcing non-competes in veterinary medicine. I found over 300 reported cases. That means that they've been appealed. They went to the state court or some sort of appellate level. 300 cases of veterinary practices suing veterinarians to enforce their non-compete. And so it is, it is very common that these are both enforced and sued upon. Now, keep in mind, that's only the ones that got reported. There were right. thousands at the district court level, at the county court level, and there's probably thousands that were settled before that that never even got to court. I mean, I think your your earlier point of like we want to have these conversations before we sign the agreement or as we're signing the agreement, just because um, having a strategy of I'm going to sign this saying how I'm going to behave and then I'm going to try to get out of it later on. I think that's generally patently 
bad strategy. It's a bad strategy because you have to basically lay there in bed every night wondering, am I going to get sued? It's not pleasant for anybody yeah. involved. And so it's much easier just to avoid the lawsuit or avoid the perspective of a lawsuit before you even get into it. Well, it's interesting, too, that, you know, you, you throw out the names of the states where restrictive covenants are not generally enforced. And you've got California, Alabama and Montana at the top of the list. Those are some strange bedfellows, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I would. You didn't know I mean if you said California and New York, I would say, OK, I kind of kind of see maybe who's pushing this. Uh, that's that's not at all the case here. This is literally a, a patchwork of laws. There's just no other way to say it. Let's talk about the the breakup here. Um, let's say that we're we're working in the practice and this relationship is coming to an end. Can you talk to me a little bit about termination agreements? Uh, yeah, just just talk to me about terminating the agreement, if you don't mind, just at, at a high level. And we'll start to drill into that. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you this, that this is probably one of the biggest areas I've, areas of change that I've seen just in the last 24 months. And so used to be I would very rarely see a contract that was a term contract. Term contract meaning that, you know, I'm going to work for Dr. Rourke for a year. I promise to work for Dr. Rourke. Dr. Rourke promises to employ me. I can't get out. He can't, you know, basically, you know, lay me off for that year. And that was very rare. That was, ta- I was, you know, five years ago, that was maybe two or 3% of the contracts I see. Now, close to 30% of the contracts I see are actually for term, meaning they don't have an at-will termination provision. So there's basically two ways to terminate a contract. One, just let it run its natural course or give notice, which is called at-will notice. And so basically how this would look is, hey, I'm working for Dr. Rourke. Dr. Rourke, it's been great. We've been, we've had a good time, but I just got to move on with my life. I'm giving you my 30, 60, 90 day notice and I'm moving on versus, hey, I've got to stay with you for the entirety of that year. That provision itself is probably the most problematic thing that I see for veterinarians. Oh, my God. Hold on. I'm like, I'm picking my head up off the floor. So I can't imagine, I can't imagine, uh, I can't imagine a scenario where you don't want to have an out clause as a doctor or as the practice, right? Like to me, it just does not make sense to take a person who wants to leave and trap them in your business. Uh, That that's mind boggling to me. It has changed dramatically. And basically my job as a contract lawyer, the first thing I look at is in a contract is how do I get my party? How do I get my client out of this contract before they even get into it? So it is to me, it's the most important provision. And keep in mind, this is this is kind of brought on by the white hot job market, the fact that it's hard to hire a veterinarian. So some practices feel the need to, quote unquote, lock their veterinarians in. This is not by mistake. They are planning on doing this and they want that veterinarian to stay there for a year, two years, in some extreme cases, three years. Lock them in. No way out. That's okay. That's that's incredible. I got into this conversation with uh, Stephanie Goss, who's a practice management consultant, and uh, we were talking about uh, about what's in contracts often, you know, as far as giving notice to leave. And so I see, uh, you know, there's a classic two weeks notice and maybe that support staff and we see stuff like that. But that's kind of been the standard. I think most of us see in in our in our society. But when we get into vet medicine, we start to see 30 days, 60 days. I see a lot of vet contracts that say 90 days notice required. Lance, you get into these things, you know, and if people are unhappy uh and, you know, there are things that are going on, uh, you know, in the practice that that no, that people are not OK with. And, you know, there there's there starts to be some feelings of resentment and people want out. Talk to me about how 
I guess sturdy these these dates are, these times are. Uh, what happens if I just say forget it? This the contract says ninety days, and I I'm getting another job and I am leaving. And, and the reason I'm asking that is because a lot of people say um, I want to leave. I'm going to leave. I want to get another job, but I'm worried about you know the fact that I can't leave for ninety days, and I'm worried if I do give them the ninety days that they're going to fire me immediately. And now I've got three months, you know, and I haven't prepared another job. And so so talk to me a little bit about about that. Well, let's back up for a second. So that notice period is definitely getting longer. 30 days is really, I don't see that anymore in the last several hundred that I've seen. Most of them are 60 to 90 days. Some of them are 180 days. Now, what happens if you're unhappy, if it's a toxic work environment, if something's going on at home and you've got to stay for another 60, 90, 180 days? Guess what? It's miserable. It's a lifetime if you've got to be there that time. And definitely, A lot of veterinarians need out faster, especially with the uncertainty that the COVID pandemic has brought on. But to answer your question directly, so what happens if you just walk? What happens if you just, you know, say, I'm done, I got to leave, I can't be here anymore? Well, what that does, if you have that extended notice period, that opens up a lawsuit for breach of contract, where the damages in in that lawsuit for breach of contract against the associate veterinarian is either the loss and profitability of that practice over that 60, 90 plus day timeframe, or the cost to replace you. And usually that's a relief veterinarian. Now, Andy, I can't exaggerate this enough. This is why this is a huge deal. I've had three phone calls this week on veterinarians that are getting sued over that breach of contract and particularly breach of that notice period. So it is something that, that practices not only watch, Number one, they put it in their contract, knowing that it takes a long time to hire another veterinarian. They watch when that notice period gets given, and then they threaten lawsuits if the veterinarian breaches. So what does that do? It absolutely demolishes the wellness of that veterinarian. They've got two choices, stay in this job that they don't like, that they want to leave, they need to move on, or lay in bed every night worrying whether or not you're going to face a lawsuit, both of which are very problematic for veterinarians that are struggling with wellness, anxiety, depression, et cetera. If I, so let's say I have 180 days notice, right? I'm supposed to give 180 days notice. And um, that just, that, uh, I'm sorry, I struggle with that. Uh, that's that's a lot. Um, let's say I, I give my 180 days notice. One of the things that I have seen is that when you go and you tell people I'm not happy and I plan to leave, uh, that affects your relationship with those people uh, often. And you start to see some petty stuff. Uh, not always. And again, um, hopefully, what you hope for is that you leave because your spouse is got another job, you know, or something is happening, and you say, "I love it here. It breaks my heart to leave." And you know, and I am giving you this notice, and I will support you in finding another person. And I am going to cry on the day that I leave, but I am letting you know that's what we all hope for, for God's sakes. But there are other times when you say this is awful or there are some unethical things that are happening here or whatever the other reasons might be. And you give them notice and it's 180 days. Um, Can they then terminate the agreement at that point, leaving me without a job, unemployed? Or are there protections for me usually? Or is it just down to the right in the contract? It comes down to that wording in the contract. And so state law is not dependent on this. And so keep in mind too, that a lot of these are not bilateral agreements. And so the practice does not necessarily have to give you 60 days if you are giving 90 days. And so a lot of times I'll see the practice gives 14, 
14 days or, you know, or 30 days, and the associate has to give 60, 90, 180 days. So it's not a bilateral situation. Secondly, yes, they can turn immediately and say, your services aren't needed anymore. You know, go somewhere else. Are they going to have to pay out my my salary generally or are they like, nope, we're, we're you're, you're out? Not necessarily so. And so it depends on the wording of the contract. But under most circumstances, that would basically uh, uh, drive a, a, a for cause or either an at will termination. And so yeah. in some cases, we can get that. And in, in, when the COVID pandemic initially onset, I was able to win some cases to get that extra 30 or 60 days before that veterinarian had to, you know, uh, to leave. But most of the time it takes a lawsuit from the associate veterinarian to the practice. And nobody really has the appetite to, yeah. to do that. Yeah, that's no fun. So it sounds to me, not to oversimplify, but it sounds to me again, like this is probably a time to appeal to fairness at the very beginning and say, hey, you know, if this doesn't work out, you don't want me here for this long. And 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 I don't want to be here for this long. And and then also, if you're able to terminate me and be done in two weeks, but I have to give notice and then wait for three months, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem fair. I mean, it seems like you in one way are acknowledging the importance of being able to move on when you want to move on and then also maybe denying me the opportunity to do the same should this end uh in badly is is that kind of accurate absolutely the take-home message here is to know what you're signing before you sign it negotiate it before you sign it and basically work with the other party work with the employer to get what you want at the end of the day here's the thing is most employers know that most veterinarians are not going to understand not going to read and not going to negotiate their employment agreement. So they put forth some of the, I hate to say it, but some of the harsh, harshest conditions they can. And so many times all it takes is just a simple ask. And that's the question I always ask, start with is, is this just doesn't seem fair. Do you yeah. think this is fair? I, well, I tell you, I tell you, I'm, I've been on both sides of the table for this, obviously, you know, so I have employees that, that work for me and, and I have their contracts and, uh, and I have, and I have taken contracts as associate vets and, and you know, and, and so I've, been on both sides of this you know I, i'll tell you and you can feel free to disagree with it i and again maybe i'm just i'm just such an optimist um i think that most veterinarians um i, I think here's what i think happens i think that when you bring in a lawyer and you say i would like to hire you to write this contract the lawyer works for you and they're like well i'm not going to let you get taken no matter what and i'm going to make this as good for you as i can and I think that that's how a lot of lawyers see the job. And I don't think most veterinarians tell them otherwise. And so I do think that when you bring in outside counsel and you pay them to create a contract, they're going to make a contract that is weighted in your favor, most likely. And, and so if I had to just sort of guess, especially in the in the individual practice or small group practice level, I would say that that that's the story I like to tell myself because it makes me feel uh, better about everyone that I deal with. But um but there is that heavy thumb on the scale of, hey, I paid this guy to make this contract. He's going to wait it in my favor because I paid him to do it. And so I, I just I feel like a lot of times the vets that put the contracts forward maybe don't even think about how weighted they are in one direction or the other. You're smiling. You Do you disagree with this? No, I agree wholeheartedly. And Andy, you can always throw the lawyer under the bus. And that's As a exactly lawyer, what I was doing too. I'm like, let me <laughs> let me shift the blame from the veterinarian to the lawyers uh, right now. Many like, times yeah. <laughs> when I when I'm working, you know, with a client or with an with an associate, 
And I just point these things out and I have them pointed out to their you know, future employer, the practice owner. The veterinarian hasn't even read these things. They don't even know what's in their own contract and they don't understand the implications you know, downstream. And so when we're dealing veterinarian to veterinarian, yes, absolutely. There's, there's, they don't mean to be unfair. It's just, they hired a lawyer and guess what? It's not only just that lawyer's fault. It's their job to write the yeah. most protective contract that they possibly can. As a lawyer that, you know, I work for employers too, and I own practices myself. Of course, we're going to put our practices in the best possible position to deal with both things legally and economically. That's just the nature of, of business. That's the nature of practice. And so it's really up to each party to know, hey, how do I protect myself? What, what are possible pitfalls that could, I could be dealt later on? What am I signing? And, and is it fair to me? Let me ask you a related question about terminating an agreement that I've wondered about. Uh, let's say that I have a contract and it comes up. It's a one-year agreement and it comes up on January 1st. And my and that contract says that I will give you 30 days, 30, days, 30 days notice on termination of the agreement. If I choose not to sign a new contract on December 31st, does that violate my contract because I didn't give 30 days notice that I would terminate it is failure to re-sign a contract. Uh, is that lumped in as the same thing as terminating the contract or are those different things? Actually, however the contract ends, we, whether it be termination, whether it be we just don't sign a new one, whatever that looks like, that is technically term termination on the contract. But having said that, an easy 70 or 80% of the contracts I see at this point have what's called an automatic extension provision in it. Meaning that if the parties don't come to a new agreement, if they don't sit down and negotiate a new one, the current contract just keeps extending, keeps expanding basically until infinity, until somebody says, I quit, I stop. So what that does in the real world for veterinarians is it makes it very hard for them to renegotiate their employment. Basically, we all know that practice managers, practice owners are busy. They sometimes they don't get around to sitting down and renegotiating that contract as an associate mm -hmm. veterinarian. You've kind of got to force them to sit down and renegotiate. Hey, let's talk about next year. Let's talk about how I did this year, basically to get that performance evaluation. If it's a good performance evaluation and that gives you the point to say, well, how about a raise? How about some more benefits? How about some days off? Whatever that looks like. But if there's an automatic extension provision in it and keep in mind, most contracts have that in there at this point, it just keeps rolling until somebody throws up the the white flag. So at some point, if I have a 30 day or a night, let's say a 90 day, um, you know, I'm supposed to give notice 90 days in advance. Uh, if it's an auto renewing contract, then I'm, go I'm going to need to give 90 days notice. There's no like, just like, well, you know what? You didn't come through with the raise that you told me that you would, and I don't like this agreement and I'm gonna be out. Uh, that it's not gonna be that simple. It puts the associate veterinarian in a tough position because they basically have to issue an ultimatum. If you don't do this, if you don't give me a raise, then I quit. And that's that's nowhere to put a, a relationship. You don't want to tell right. a friend or a significant other. <laughs> you don't want to deliver ultimatums. It doesn't make you look very no. good. No, and I want to be I want to be clear with that. We're we're talking a lot about about we're down in the weeds in in the contracts, and and it's easy to get. To grab onto details and 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 sort of get fired up, I I still you know I believe that people are innately good. I I I just do. I I think that everybody wants what's best. I think everybody generally wants to be fair to their people and to themselves. And you know, and the contracts to me a gr a great contract 
is the 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 main purpose that it serves is clear expectations. You know what I mean? Like we're putting it down, what you can expect from me, what I can expect from you. Everybody is in alignment, no surprises. And that's that's what I, I tend to feel like contracts should be. I agree with you. I mean, con- as a contract lawyer, you know, I, I do like contracts because of those clear expectations. However, I have to tell you that some very, very small provisions, a sentence here, a sentence there, can absolutely change your life, change yeah. where you live, change where you have to move, put you in a bad position for 30 or 60 or 180 days. Those little bitty sentences, five or 10 words can change massive aspects of your life. So give me here at the end, your best bullet point pieces of advice going in to negotiate this contract. Associate veterinarians, it's a white hot job market right now. Associate veterinarians are absolutely in the driver's seat when it comes to negotiating these. And so what I tell associate veterinarians is know what's in the contract, know that you have other options. You don't have to sign that overly restrictive non-compete agreement, that over, overly restrictive termination agreement. You can, you can change those things. Every practice, whether it be the biggest corporation or the smallest mom and pop practice, it is all negotiable. Don't let someone from the practice tell you this isn't negotiable because our legal team says so, or this isn't negotiable because we have you know a thousand other veterinarians. That is just not true. Every aspect of all these contracts is negotiable, and the associate veterinarian in this job market is in the driver's seat and getting those changes made. Cool, I love it. Thanks, Lance. Where can uh, where can people find you online, or if they need to reach out? We have lots of fun materials on contract law and negotiations over at drip.vet. Easy website, drip.vet. Come over and see us. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks again for being here. Thank you, Dr. Rourke. Good to see you. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got something out of it. If you did, feel free to do the things that all the podcast people ask you to do, like uh, write an honest review on iTunes or like text it to your friends or share it like that. Or you could uh, you could put it on in the vet clinic just in the background uh, in the treatment room. Or I mean, it doesn't have to be in the vet clinic. Like if you're having a cookout and you just want to just set some some mood uh some some medical education mood and just put it on and play who knows people might like it it could i mean it could really catch on i don't know i'm just i'm just thinking you be creative you do what you what you feel and um and i'll i'll support you so anyway thanks for being here guys hope you enjoyed it i will see you next week